it's almost like you have to look at it like a business. You know, what what do you want the culture of your team to be? And then focus on that and make sure that the people you're working with are bought into what you're doing. Because I'm telling you right now, you could you could raise Bill Bowerman for the dead and he could write your schedule. But if you don't have the people that you're working with believing in you and believing in each other and believing in what they're doing, it's not going to work. That's Ben Rosario, and this is episode 33 of the Morning Shakeout Podcast. Hey, what's up, everybody? I'm your host, Mario Fraioli, and this week I've got Ben Rosario, who is the founder and head coach of Hoka Northern Arizona Elite, which is a training group based out of Flagstaff, Arizona. Ben and I caught up recently at the Chicago Marathon, and this was a super fun conversation. We got into the weeds about a lot of coaching stuff, which was fun for me, including exactly what Ben does the weekend of a major marathon when he's got athletes competing, his general approach to training, what he thinks athletes are missing, and all that sort of stuff, which I think many of you will find interesting. But we also dug into Ben's career, how he got to where he is today. He's had pretty interesting go of it since he graduated from Truman State back in the early 2000s. He was an Olympic trials qualifier for the Hanson's Brooks Distance Project, coached middle school cross country for a little while, then he owned a running shoe store in his hometown of St. Louis, Missouri. He went on to work in marketing for some different organizations, has done some race directing, and now he is a full-time head coach. This was an awesome conversation. I'm not going to ruin it for you, so please sit back and enjoy my chat with Ben Rosario. Rosario, welcome to the Morning Shakeout Podcast. Thank you for having me live and in person. I like it. Yeah, this is great. So we're in Chicago. Chicago Marathon is tomorrow. This episode's going to come out a week, maybe two weeks after the race. But take me through your weekend. What does Saturday before a big Sunday race look like for you? Well, I got up and I ran Aaron Braun's shakeout run with him uh, three miles and watched him do some drills and strides. And then went to breakfast with him and his family. Um, his wife and daughters are here and his brother's here. So that was kind of cool. And then I just left him be, you know, I mean, there's really no coaching to do per se. I mean, you've already done that. So I don't try to uh, get in their way and, you know, I'm pretty nervous, so I'd rather just stay away. I don't know if they can feel that or not, but I'd rather just you know, just let them be. And so I walk around and just hang out and do stuff like this, try to network, try to um, do some business stuff if I can. And then I'll see him again at the tech meeting at 3.30. And then Scott Falwell and Scott Smith will be there too. They're um, pacing, so they'll be at the tech meeting. And then I'll probably eat dinner with them at the elite athlete dinner that they have and we'll just hang out, not talk running and then uh, go back. I'm staying in an Airbnb with Scott and Scott. Normally we would probably be at the host hotel, but I actually wanted to be away because this is a workout for them. I don't want them to get too over overly emotional because this is, this is Scott and Scott Fallball and Scott, Scott Smith. Smith. Yeah. That's what I'm staying with. Yep. They're, they're pacing. And so for them, they're going 17 miles at like five flat to five Oh two pace, which is a great workout four weeks from New York. Uh, but again, I want it to be a workout, you know, and, and, um, I don't want to come back to Flagstaff emotionally drained because they were in the host hotel and all the hubbub and all that kind of stuff. So I'm trying to keep them away from that as much as possible. Yeah. And I can, 
relate on a very similar level. I've got two athletes here myself. I met with one of them this morning, chat with the other one here after we finish up our conversation. But I like to stay out of the way. I think it's important for me to just make sure that they're good. I have any last minute questions or fears that I can, you know, quell a little bit, but then I just got to get out of the way. There's not much I can do at this point. If they're not ready to go, they're not ready to go. But so it goes with coaching. Sometimes. Yeah, you try to just stay very calm and confident and uh, in front of them. And then, uh, you know, you're a spectator on Sunday. So for Scott and Scott, who are pacing 17-ish miles tomorrow at pace, big workout for them before the New York City Marathon. Is this something new for your crew to do that in an actual race situation? I know that's a very common workout a lot of times as a simulator for elite level athletes, but usually they don't do it in another marathon. Yeah, I mean, it worked out. You know, normally we'd be in Flagstaff doing that, but because Chicago was exactly four weeks out and because it's not a very long flight, I felt like it worked out really well. Um, If this had been a different weekend or a different city, I don't think we would have done it, to be honest with you, but it was too good to pass up because it really was not a compromise for Scott and Scott. I mean, it's a great workout for them. They'll be at sea level. They'll be running actual marathon pace. They'll get their bottles and be able to really have a true dress rehearsal. I think we usually call it a dress rehearsal, but this is a true dress rehearsal. And for Aaron, it's going to be fantastic. I mean, I mean, I think anybody could relate to this. If you have to have anyone pace you, you'd really rather it be a training partner. It feels so comfortable. There's a level of comfort there that That's you right. can't replicate in other places. These guys have done how many long runs and marathon pace workouts together. It's just another day on Lake Mary Road. That's right. Well, and Scott- Minus the elevation. Scott Smith and Aaron Braun have, I mean, geez, they've known each other and run together since 2010, probably. So um, it'll be very familiar. What does tomorrow look like for you on race day? Well, I like Chicago because I can be out and about. I prefer to be out on the streets cheering, even though I'm not really doing anything. You feel like you're doing something, you know, as a coach. So uh, in Chicago on foot, I usually go from 5K to half marathon, then over to 17, where this year I'll pick up Scott and Scott, and then I'll head over to 20 and then down to 25. And sometimes I'll maybe jog a little bit backwards and go to about 24 or something, because theoretically, if you're going to have any impact as a coach out on the streets, it would be late, um, particularly there in Chicago, because they can hear you because it doesn't really get crowded until you get closer to the finish. So I, I was, for example, last year, Aaron was, uh, had a little bad patch between mm, 18 and eh, yeah, 16 and maybe 24, um, where it was really hot. The sun had come out and things, but I did kind of wake him up out of it at 23, 24. Cause I told him what place he was in and what American he was. And I think he didn't realize that he was doing that well. Uh, Cause it kind of gets crazy out there. You don't know who's ahead, who's behind, who's dropped out and things like that. And, um, so that kind of jolted him. So, you know, maybe tomorrow there can be something like that. Yeah. And mentally at that point for a marathoner, who's pushing toward the finish, they're a little drained. And just a signal from a voice that's familiar can go a very long way. Yeah. I wish, so in New York last year, when Kellen Taylor was uh, eighth and Steph Bruce was 10th, Kellen was in fifth as late as a half mile to go. And I regret not running out onto the course because I was in the VIP area watching on television, which is a cool setup in New York uh, that they have for the coaches and agents. But 
I wish I would have run out and just, I mean, I probably wouldn't have made a difference. I'm not saying she wasn't running as hard as she could, of course, but it would have just been nice with a mile to go to hear, Hey, they are coming, <laughs> you know, get your butt moving. Uh, but again, you know, uh, maybe I'll do that this year. Uh, I'll watch until the very end and then maybe run out. Cool. We're going to bounce all over the, all over the place over the course of this conversation, but sticking with the proximity of Chicago, Aaron's going to hopefully finish well tomorrow and come away with a great race. What do the next couple of weeks look like for him from a recovery and then reintroduction into training standpoint? Well, we'll do two weeks off with no running. And then, I mean, he'll beg to jog a couple times probably. So probably maybe the second week jog a couple times, 15 minutes or something. And then the next two weeks after that will be very easy running. So it ends up being a whole month. Really. I see it as a whole month of recovery, two weeks off, two weeks of very easy running. And then, you know, Back come November, it starts light workouts and everything's just real gradual. Sometimes you have to push the envelope a little bit, depending on what's coming on the other side. But I think this time around for him with this race being early October and really not racing until January, I think we could be pretty gradual. There's some runners who look forward to that break, but there are many who can't stand it. The last thing they want to do is stop running for two days, never mind two weeks. But why is that time completely off from running important? Well, I have a theory on that. Typically, I see most folks who really want to get back at it and don't want to miss any time. Oftentimes, that's the folks, those are the folks who got into running later in life. And so running for them was a was a life-changing thing where they used to not be fit and then they got fit and it is fun to be fit. It feels good. You're healthy. You feel great. And so there's sort of an attachment to it and sort of this, I don't know, deep psychological thing where if they, they fear that if they stop running for even a short period of time, they'll go back to who they were before. And I'm playing armchair psychologist here, but that's what I've seen. And of course that's not true. You know, you need that time off to answer your question. And the reason is you, you tear your body apart, you know, in the marathon, you're running 26 miles on the pavement as basically as hard as you can go for 26 miles, um, spreading out the energy over the, over the court, over the entire course. And, um, that causes micro tears in your muscle fibers and those micro tears need uh, time to heal. So I don't know what else to tell people except you got to do it, you know? And, and, and I guess one of the things I used to say, and I'll say now is the best runners in the world do it. This is their job. This is their profession. They get paid to do this. If running the next day were the best thing, they would do that, (laughs) you know, because this is how they make a living. So obviously the best thing to do uh, is to take some time off. Yeah. Let's look at your group on a very broad level right now. Hoka, Northern Arizona, elite. Added a few new faces to the squad in recent months. What's the total number now? A dozen, 12, 12 athletes. So you've got 12. Do you have Seven plan- women, five men. Do you have plans to expand it beyond that, or is that a workable number for you? That's a pretty good number um, for a number of reasons. Uh, obviously, money is involved, and there's a salary um, cap uh, or a, a budget limit, I guess you would say, that we have. And so um, we wanted to bring in a crew that was really high level. And, of course, we could have a few more athletes, but then you'd have to spread out the money more so you wouldn't get the same quality, and we want really high-quality athletes. So 12 is pretty good. I could see 
potentially another male athlete since we're at seven women and five men. It would be nice to maybe get one more male athlete, but at the same time, our core is really good on the men's side, and and I don't feel a need to do that. But if the right situation came along and the and it was financially feasible, then I could see adding a male athlete. But I think we're really good on the women's side. Yeah, and I know earlier this year you renewed your contract with Hoka for the entire group. How important is that title level support for your group sustainability? Well, I mean, it's the, the everything. There is no sustainability if if not. Uh, so, yeah, because they are able to support us in a way that uh, makes what we do viable. You know, um, obviously, it's my job. It's my full time job. So that's they pay my salary, and and um, and the athletes get salaries, and and there's really good bonus structure. And um, if we didn't have all of those things we wouldn't be able to have a professional group. Um, so it's just, it's really that simple. Either either we exist or we don't. And then we exist because of them. Now, you know, I'd like to believe we're creating a nice ROI and, and have um, really serious um, or providing really serious returns. But, um, you know, because it's not a charity, <laughs> you know, they, when, when you say support, I mean, they're supporting us, but, but they're doing it because they see value in what we bring to the brand. And right. so, you know, over these next three years, um, I'm treating them just like we treated the first three, which is, I want to make it so, so you can't say no, you know, next time around. And we're, you know, really big part of the brand. Yeah. Well, let's dig into that a little bit. They renewed your contract. So obviously they saw a lot of ROI or value in what you were doing and bringing back to the Hoka brand. What do you think, if you had to pin down to a few key things, what do you think that is beyond just the performances that your athletes have been putting up? Well, of course, performance is number one, because if you don't perform, then you won't have a platform from which to speak. Um, No one will listen to you. You know, Meb is a wonderful brand ambassador, but if he didn't win the Boston Marathon, the New York Marathon, silver medal you wouldn't really listen to him, you know? And so um, that's how we see it. Performance number one. And of course, we've been able to have some good performances, but then we're able to capitalize on those performances. So um, we're able to tell our story along the way, uh, both beforehand, during, after um, these these races, um, keep people along for the ride, if you will. So share the journey, which is what we say internally. And you know, one of the ways I explain it to the folks is you, you want to bring these people along, the fans, uh, along on the entire journey so that when you do have the big day, because we've got to assume we're going to have the big day. That's why we're working so darn hard. Then when you have it, it's a bigger deal because people felt invested. And so when you're talking about how that relates to Hoka or a brand, you know, they feel invested too. There, there's something to be said for the the uh, motivation, inspiration, um, morale, you know, that we can bring to the company, you know, inside the walls in, in Goleta, California at headquarters, you know, they're paying attention to what we're doing and they're every Monday, they're reviewing all the athletes and what they did over the weekend. And that gives, that gets those folks fired up about the brand as well. So there's a lot of different ways that I think pro athletes are valuable to a brand. Uh, but, but at the end of the day, it's eyeballs. You know, and we've been able to prove tangibly through analytics, but but then also, you know, intangibly and anecdotally that that um, people know who we are and we're bringing credibility and awareness um, to Hoka. And that's what they're paying us for. What does that 
analytical side look like for you? I know from talking to Scott Fobble in episode one of this podcast, he mentioned that you have almost weekly meetings to go over some of these key analytics. What does that look like in the course of a week for you when you're communicating about it to the athletes? Yeah. I mean, now we're, we're, what we're doing is monthly meetings and every single meeting, at least part of that meeting is dedicated to social media. Now I used to keep track of every single person's, uh, the number of times they, they posted on each platform and then the number of followers and the percentage increase and those kind of things. As we've gotten more visibility, um, I've gotten a little bit away from those numbers and focused more on the content. What are you putting out? You know, it's not just how often you're putting out something. What are you putting out? Is it is it of quality? And are you finding your voice? So it's more now. It's more a discussion and looking at hey, this is working for you. This appears to be your voice. Keep doing this, you know. Or hey, why don't you try this, you know? And then building up each other. I mean, we just had a meeting just with the women a couple of weeks ago. And um, one of our athletes, Alephine Tullymook, is is a little bit banged up right now. She had to withdraw from the New York City Marathon. But we were talking to her about basically just how great we all think she is and how, hey, hey, this is a great opportunity because you can bring these people along, the fans, and, and kind of because they go through this too. Bridge that gap a bit. Totally. Like, let them know you're hurt. And because and, so many athletes just retreat, you know, when they're hurt, I said, let them know and, and do some stuff and, and do some videos and, and post some things because you're hilarious. Everybody loves Alephine on the team and everybody that's ever met her. So I said, it's basically just doing what you do in person, but just doing it on social media so that people know who you are and can follow you and and, uh, and you'll be back. And when, you, and when you do come back, they're going to love it. Well, and that's one of the biggest issues in running from a fan perspective, right, is you have these elite athletes who are doing incredible things that the average runner cannot relate to. But they also deal with a lot of the same things that we do, whether it's hard workouts or, you know, failed workouts or injury or being in a slump or whatever it may be, but we never get to see that. Um, And, you know, kudos to you and your group for just being open and honest about that, because I think by doing so, it's inspired others outside of Northern Arizona elite to show like, Hey, you know, we, you know, we deal with a lot of the same things that, that you do. And that's great for the whole sport. Um, and I think it just helps create more fans and it helps create more relatability. And it's just, it's a good thing for everyone. I hope so. Yeah, no, I, I, uh, I think that's what we're trying to do. You know, we're trying to be relatable. I think if someone feels like they know you, then they're going to cheer harder for you. They're going to follow you. And, uh, you know, that's what we're going for. So I want to dig into the coaching side of things here in a bit, but I know your background academically is in marketing and business. How much of that influences your approach to how you operate Hoka Nazalite? Yeah, I see myself as playing both roles. So executive director and then um, uh, coach. So I think those are separate things. Luckily, they overlap a ton. I mean, if, if there were two separate positions, those two people would be talking a lot. So it really gives me a big advantage to be on the inside and, and understand how the athletes tick and, and what might work for them 
on the business side, you know. Uh, but um, how much of it is is uh, is the business side? Well, a ton. You know, I mean, I treated it like a business from day one and I like the business side of it. I mean, I think that's an advantage for me because I think a lot of coaches and it's no offense to them. Why would they like it? You know, but, but they don't like the business side. They don't like the social media side. They just want to coach, but I'm not like that. If it was just coaching, it wouldn't be enough for me to be honest with you. And athletes too. A lot of them just want to run. Exactly. Exactly. But it's part of their job, you know? And so, um, it becomes then my job to make sure that they're doing their job and, uh, above and beyond running and, and, you know, again, interacting with the fans in, in various ways, um, in a, on a consistent basis. But, but, you know, I like all sorts of, um, I like, I like all aspects of the business that's involved with, with the team. You know, I like, I like the marketing side. I really like finding a voice for the team. Um, but then I also like the dollars and cents and dealing with Hoka and dealing with the elite athlete coordinators. And, and of course we have good agents that we work with, but I like working with the agents. I just like all of that stuff. And so, um, it, yeah, again, it's just, it's, I'm fortunate because I like it. Let's rewind a bit. We're about the same age. When you got out of school, you pursued your own competitive career for a while, qualified for the marathon trials, did that with Hanson's Brooks, owned a running shop in St. Louis for a while, still going big river running, even though you're not um, a part of it from a you know, financial perspective at this point and ownership. And you moved to Flagstaff, not necessarily to start Hoka Naz Elite, but then you did. Um, how long had you been thinking about starting an elite level training group? And when did you decide that the time was right to finally do that? There's two ways to answer that question. I mean, in, in one sense, I, I wasn't thinking about it when I moved to Flagstaff. I mean, that wasn't some grand plan that, that Jen and I had, my wife. Um, that happened organically in the sense that I just started coaching people and then coaching more people. And then it was kind of obvious in my gut that, hey, this is what I really wanted to do. But to be fair, it didn't, the thought itself didn't come from nowhere. I had thought about that in one way or another for a long time because I had lived through the Hanson's Brooks experience, loved it, two of my absolute favorite years, uh, or two of the favorite years of my life. Um, and then when I had the stores, we sort of had a sub-elite group uh, at Big River Running Company. I kind of, I mean, gosh, if I could have done it then, I would have done it then, you know, because I had money, <laughs> a lot of money. So I had the I had the capital to do it, you know, in St. Louis, but nobody's going to come to St. Louis, no offense to my hometown, to to train at a professional level. So we had to do it sort of at a sub-elite level, people that lived there anyway. But we had a great time and we kind of made stars out of those people locally. We brought them to events, you know, uh, we shared their training. And it was a lot of the stuff that you see us doing now, I really actually did You were putting that foundation totally. in place. It's just, it's just what worked in St. Louis uh, on, a, on a small scale. And now it's just bringing it to a national scale. So I I guess, again, there's two answers to the question. It, it had crossed my mind many, many times, uh, and I knew kind of how I wanted to do it if, if the opportunity ever arose. But then I, when I was in Flagstaff, it's not what I planned to do. It's just the opportunity presented itself. And what are you, four years in at this point? Yeah, January 14. So we're almost, you know, coming up on five years coming up on this five January. Years. Yep. Um, when you did kick it off, looking back and considering where you are now, is this where you thought you'd be in five years? 
I don't know if I had a five-year plan, you know, I, you're giving me too much credit. I think, uh, you know, I was just going one, one year at a time, you know, I mean, yes, I, that's what I envisioned. I envisioned a, spon- a title sponsor. I envisioned really high quality athletes, you know, trying to make the Olympic team. So, I mean, I guess, I guess, yes, it, it has been kind of a perfect scenario. And I would say this is what I would have hoped for, but you know, you don't have time to hope and dream very much. You got to be basically just busting your butt every single day. And so you don't have too much, too much time to be thinking about the future. You just got to be working really hard uh, in the moment. What have been some of the most memorable moments so far with your Nazalite experience? Ah, it's so hard because you think of the last one, you know? Yeah. Uh, well, certainly going backwards, chronologically, I mean, just very recently this summer, Kellen Taylor running the Grandma's Marathon and running 224, was so such a great moment for her she worked so hard and you know gosh it's just such a running thing every runner knows this speaking of relatable things you know how fit you are and your team knows how fit you've been but just things happen and you know you, see, you don't want to make excuses publicly but just little things that just prevented that 224, 225 from being run a long time ago quite frankly and so to see her do that and win that I was really special Steph Bruce that's also this last summer winning her first national title I mean when when we started working together she was pregnant you know and then she got pregnant again you know so that journey with her from a coach athlete perspective has been such a deep you know long arduous journey and um that was cool that was a really cool moment. Uh, so those are two recent ones, but all, all the all the big races, and of course the Olympic trials, marathon, and, and and track trials. Even though we didn't get the job done, we were so close, and it was, um, you know, so proud of those guys. What keeps you up at night? Ah, uh, when people are dinged up, you know, or or um, or if they don't run well, you know, um, that always stinks. Um, it's hard it, not to take it personally. Speaking from my own perspective yeah you put it on yourself of course you know and uh but i think you should i mean you know um that's part of the gig if you can't handle that you know you're in the wrong business um yeah when when people are when people are banged up or when they don't run well it's tough it's real tough because you you there's two things going on number one you feel for them you know you feel bad for them because you you're so personally invested in their uh process. And then number two, you're pissed at yourself, you know, cause what did you do wrong? You know, and you're trying to figure it out. Um, but I'm usually able to step back and, and, and look at it from a common sense perspective and there's usually a reason. And then, you know, as long as we can correct that reason, then off we go. I'd love to focus on your progression for a little while. Let's go way back to the early running days. What was your introduction to the sport? Well, that's not an interesting story. It's just the same as everybody's, you know, for middle school. Uh, I mean, it's, it's a little different because I had a, I had a middle school teacher or grade school teacher. I went to this little Catholic grade school in St. Louis in the city and, um, uh, I had a teacher who happened to be a runner and it wasn't necessarily the glory days. I mean, this is, you know, early nineties, you know, 1990 or something, 91, 92. And, um, he just happened to be a runner. And so he was really into it and he put on a little track meet for all the little Catholic grade schools. And he put on a little cross country meet for, for all the little schools in the city. And, uh, so I got to do those meets and he would train us after quote unquote train us after school. We just run a couple miles around the neighborhood. And, um, you know, that was my introduction, but I do have to say, um, if he hadn't been at that school, I don't know if I'd have gotten introduced to it until later and then you just never know. So I was very fortunate in that sense. And then I went to a very good high school that, um, had a wonderful coach, uh, Jim Linares. And so, um, then I was hooked completely. How important is it at that 
sort of middle school, maybe even a bit earlier, all the way up to high school level to make running something that is cool, or at least appealing to kids. Because at that age, a lot of them look at it as punishment. It's the last thing that they want to do. Yeah. Hmm. I, it's, I think it's very important. Um, the coolest thing that ever happened to me, well, that's a lot of saying a lot, but, uh, one of the coolest things that ever happened to me, uh, in terms of my coaching at all levels was I was sitting at the store, Big River in, um, you know, 2008 or nine or 10, I don't know what year. And, um, uh, the phone rang at the store and young man uh, was on the other line and he asked, uh, for me. And I said, yeah, this is, this is him. And it was this, is this kid named Kevin Liu. I had coached him in middle school in Michigan when I was at the hand, when on the Hanson team, I had volunteered at this little, uh, middle school van who's in middle. And he had just, he had just graduated high school and he was calling to thank me because I had introduced him to the sport and he, you know, that's when he had fell in love with it. And it turned out he ran all four years in high school and, you know, he was going to run in college and, and he just, he just looked me up to thank me. And I thought that changed is, his life. it changed his life, you know, and that was the coolest thing because it just reminded you how important it is, uh, to introduce the sport to young people because you never know if you'll be the spark or something else or an event that you put on or, a, a, you know, for us, like if we bring the athletes to a, to a, a pep rally or whatever it might be, you just never know, uh, what, what the spark is going to be. And, uh, you know how, what it was for you and, and it could happen anytime. So you try to, you try to introduce kids to it as much as you can. You mentioned your high school coach, Jim Leinert. You and he wrote a book together yeah. uh, geared toward high school cross-country athletes. Talk about his influence on your life at that point of your life. Yeah, I just spoke to Jim right before you, uh, right before you and I did this. Um, it was enormous, you know, uh, because he was so passionate about cross-country. And it was just, it's cool as a kid to find something like that in your life, you know, because you don't have that up until that happens, whether it's cross country or, or whatever. But um, when that happens, it's a very cool feeling. And so he was a role model in that sense. It was just cool to see someone so dedicated to something, just so dedicated to something because your peers aren't dedicated to anything. They're just being kids, you know? And then you find this thing that means this much to you and that you care this much about. Um, it's hard to put into words, but Jim was like, uh, you know, he was a coach, but he was like a father figure and, and, and then a mentor and now a friend. And he's just been an enormous part of my life. Moving on from there, you ran collegiately at Truman State, which is Division Two. I ran Division Two, so I can appreciate your your journey as an athlete. Then you joined Hanson's Brooks uh, and spent two years there, as you had alluded to. How important was that opportunity for you as a unheralded college runner to be able to continue your competitive career after graduation? Yeah, unheralded to say the least. Uh, no, I was so fortunate. I was just. I think I beat you at nationals in two thousand three. I'm sure you did. I'm sure he did. Uh, I. Okay, so like so many athletes, I wanted desperately to continue, you know, and desperation can be a great driving force. Um, I read an article about the Hansons in Runner's World in 2000. 
two. And I mean, I just wanted to join the team so badly. I mean, it just became my, my passion to join that team. And so, um, I wrote, uh, what did I do? I took from their website, they had their bios and I sort of copied that template and put my own face and my own name in there and my own credentials and all that stuff. And so that was the resume I sent. It looked just like the ones that they use on their site. And then I had printed out my entire training log from the last year. So I had this thick training log that I put all of, I put all that and the resume and a cover letter into a manila envelope and sent it to the stores. And, you know, luckily they read it. And, um, I think, gosh, I mean, they just gave me a shot really, you know, they just, I mean, there was no other reason, you know, they just, I think, but, but they, they had me up and we, we hit it off. And, um, I think they knew that I was certainly serious and passionate, but so are a lot of people, but they also, I had also run the Chicago marathon in 2002, uh, on my own, um, as a fifth year senior when I was out of eligibility and had gotten pretty far at trials pace, I think 22 miles before I finally, uh, Wheels came off. hit the wall. And so they knew that I could qualify for the trials too, which I think was good. Cause that's that, at that time. Anyway, it was big for them to get a lot of people into the trials. And so nowadays somebody with my credentials would never get into that program, but, uh, um, you know, it was just good timing for me. And so, uh, what did it do for me? It did everything for me because it, it was not only a wonderful opportunity in terms of training and learning, but it was the first time in my life that I had a job that I liked. You know, it was an aha moment to be passionate about cross country, finally passionate about something. But then it was another aha moment to enjoy going to work, to drive to the stores and not be, you know, cause when you're a kid, you work at a movie theater or you work at uh, the mall or wherever, and you you dread going to work. I didn't dread going to work. That was a big, big thing for me. And of course, eventually led to me opening my stores. What were your biggest takeaways as an athlete? Ah, uh, yeah. Well, it's driving force still behind a lot of the philosophy I have as a coach, which is just that, um, you know, at least as far as the marathon goes, it's not, it's not rocket science. You know, it's basically pretty simple stuff, but you got to run a lot and you have to run on tired legs a lot and you have to put in a lot of work. Um, and there's no shortcuts. So in a nutshell, that's what it taught me. It also taught me too, that you can do more than you think you can. Oftentimes you've set these limits on yourself because of whatever bubble you've been in. So you're at high school X and high school X is, you know, and you're, you're a female and, and, and that, that, that school's school record is 1930. So you think 1930 is unbelievable, you know, and maybe you break it, maybe you don't, but 1930 is the time, right? But then the school down the road, their school record is 1830. So those girls think 1830 is good. It's so much of it is in your own mind. And I say that because I remember going to Hanson's and, you know, I felt like I had worked pretty hard in, in high school or in college, I should say. But I remember my first workout, Stony Creek Park, Kevin used to give us the workouts on a Microsoft Word doc at our team meetings. And the first one I got, the first workout, I think it was two by three miles at five, whatever pace, five flat or five ten. I don't remember the pace, but I just remember looking at it and thinking, I can't do this. I've never done something this hard in my whole life. And then I got out there and what are you supposed to do? You, I just did it. You know, I hung on to everybody and I just did it. You don't it. have a choice. And so you don't have a choice. And so that in some ways has guided me as well because it's just... Um, it, it just, it taught me very quickly that you can do more than you think you can. So let's dig in a little bit more there. Obviously, Hanson's is a group training environment. What you have at Hoka Nazali is a group training environment. Hanson's were one of the first in this country at a professional level, at least one of the first recognizable ones in the recent era. Um, going all the way back, they modeled themselves after Greater Boston Track Club. Since then, we've seen Mammoth Track Club go through various iterations at Fitness. 
Oregon Project, Bowerman Track Club. I'm forgetting a bunch here. How important is that group training environment, not just at an elite level, but for runners who are trying to improve? Oh, I mean, you know, I'm biased, obviously, but I just always feel like you can push one another to places that you wouldn't otherwise be able to go. I mean, that's the bottom line. Um, What I used to say, I used to speak all the time in front of groups when I had the stores. And one of the things that I would mention to people who were getting into running was find a partner because you're so much more likely to get out the door if Bob is waiting for you on the corner on a cold winter morning than if Bob is not waiting for you <laughs> on the corner and um, and you don't have any accountability. You know, training partners give you accountability. They give you um, a social piece that you wouldn't otherwise have. They give you um, motivation, inspiration. Um, I just think at all levels, having training partners is uh, almost essential. I do know that there are people who are very um, capable of running by themselves and they enjoy that and, and the solidarity it provides and the peacefulness it provides. Um, and I think there's, I think everybody should run on their own sometimes, you know, but I think in general, for most people, you you need partners. How big is personality aspect of it? Speaking specifically to your group today, when you're bringing in a new athlete, more important than ever, more important than ever. Uh, One, because Look, I mean, it's just it's just common sense. We we have enough good people. <laughs> we don't need, you know, you could have these great credentials, but so does everybody else in the group. You know, ultimately, we want to go to the Olympics. Well, we already have people that I think are going to make the Olympic team. You know, in twenty twenty, so we don't need, um, we don't need your times. We need your energy. You know, um, what are you contributing? What are you contributing? Are you a positive member of the team? Do you believe in what we do? And here's the thing. When I say that, I don't mean there's anything wrong if you don't, you know, we just have, we just have a certain way we do things and it works, uh, for us. And if, if you're not the type of person that's going to fit into that and you're not going to bring that positivity, that's okay. I'm sure that there's another place that probably would work for you, but it's just not us, you know? And so, yeah, personality is uh, enormous. And that's why, uh, the folks we brought in this summer have just been fantastic because they're just awesome people. Well, and they're on the younger side and you've got a number of veterans on your team, like Steph Bruce, like Alephine, like Ben Bruce, who they can learn from too. So there's almost a built-in pipeline there and, and a built-in mentoring program that they can benefit from. Yeah. I mean, that was a big selling point, I think, for them was the fact that, you know, Aaron Clark, Grayson Murphy, Alice Wright, Danny Shanahan, here's these wonderful college runners, good times, good PRs, but they're coming into a group now where their PRs don't look so good compared to Steph and Kellen and Alephine and their credentials don't look so good. And so it's a, it's an awesome opportunity for them to train with people that are better than them. You know, and I, I think that's part of the personality too, is I'm, I was excited that they were excited about that, that they were excited about getting their butts kicked in practice. That's, that's good because if you can't handle that at a high level group, you're going to be in trouble because you are going to get your butt kicked, you know, and, and some of these young girls are probably going to eventually be able to run right with, uh, Steph Kellen and Alphine. So you, you got to be okay with that. You got to be pumped about that. Bottom line, find a training partner, find a mentor, someone that you can learn from and be inspired by. That's right. So back to your time at Hanson's or moving on from your time at Hanson's, you're still a young guy. I mean, in your twenties and you left to go back to St. Louis and start a running shop. What was the situation with your own competitive career at that point? Were you kind of ready to hang it up? Were you ready to sort of wind it down? Take me through the thought process of that period in time. 
Well, not right away. And I, and I didn't go right back to start the stores. I went back and I worked at the St. Louis Marathon for one year and was still very serious about running, not thinking about winding it down at all. Um, only really left because that particular job came up in my hometown and I was frustrated about a couple other things, nothing to do with Keith or Kevin. I broke up with my girlfriend and, and, um, struggled a little bit that again, not their fault at all. Totally mine. Uh, but I think again, having a lot to do with that breakup and just not having a good last season and not having any money. And it just was wearing on me, uh, mentally. You needed a change. You needed a change. Exactly. Which is, you know, normal. Um, but no, I was fully intent on running as well as I possibly could all the way through those, you know, 2008 trials that were going to be in the fall of 07 and, uh, and ran probably my best period of running in my life, at least performance wise was from 2005 to 2007. Although from a marathon perspective, I got second at the twin cities marathon in 05, um, which I was in St. Louis at the time training for that. And then I had a bad one at grandma's in 06 and I didn't do well in the marathon after that. Honestly, it was really hot and humid. And I think it messed with me somehow because I couldn't ever run long runs as good as I used to be. That used to be my thing. Um, so I ran terribly at the 07 trials and that's when I was going to hang it up to your question. And I was fine with it. Honestly, the stores were kicking butt and I was working a million hours a week and it's not that I didn't care. I just, it just wasn't a priority for yeah, me Yeah, you're putting anymore. your energy elsewhere at that totally, point. Totally, totally. But here's the cool thing that happened is because I had buddies in St. Louis that I was running with all the time, I didn't want to leave them hanging and I had so much fun. It was like the one chance, the one one hour a day that I uh, could just enjoy myself and not be thinking about business. And so I kept running mostly to just hang out with those guys. And I, I had another kind of period that was really good from 07 to 09 where I ran shorter stuff and ended up setting a PR in the mile and all this kind of stuff. And I think it was because I was just so free. I didn't care. And I don't mean that in a bad way. I just it wasn't a priority in my life. And so I was just doing it to see how fast I could run. I wasn't doing it as a step toward the trials or to prove myself to anyone or, or you there know, none of these external expectations no, no on your external. shoulders. It was, just, it was running fast for the sake of running fast. Cause it was enjoyable. I wanted to see how, uh, what I could do. And it had, I mean, and if I missed a day, I missed a day. I didn't care. I didn't care. And in the old days that would tear me up, you know? And so, uh, it was, that was a fun period too. Like Oh eight, Oh nine. I had some fun. And then, and then after that, I, was just, I just couldn't do it anymore. But uh, yeah, it was good. Let's talk about coaching. You had mentioned how you volunteered at a high school when you were with the Hansons program in Michigan. Was that your introduction to working with other athletes? Yeah, I mean, I'd always, you know, to some extent, even in college, our coach was very hands-off. So I would write the, I would get everybody together in the summers, get everybody together in winters, write little training schedules for people. So it was always a part of what I did, I think, in one way or another. And then in Michigan, I volunteered. It was middle school um, for a couple of years. And then um, uh, when I came back to St. Louis, I coached all kinds of people, beginners. I coached the youth team. Through I the coached, shop? Yeah, through the shop, the sub elite runners in town. Um, got a couple people to the trials in the marathon, got coached an 800 runner to the semis at the Olympic trials in, in 2012. And so... Um, it was just, it's just always been something I've done. Was it hard for you once you moved to Flagstaff to get pros to buy in or more elite level athletes to buy in or were they seeking you out based on what they had learned from your past experiences? Well, I wasn't seeking anyone out really. I just, uh, Matt Yano, who was, uh, without a coach at the time, I just went on a couple runs with him and I was just like, man, I feel like I could help this guy, you know? And so I just talked to him about it and, uh, he was on board. And so we started working together and had success. And then of course, when people see someone having success, they want to know 
they could get some of that, you know? And um, what was nice was that, um, what well, wasn't nice, I don't wish this to happen, but the, the group that was there at the time dissolved, um, the Adidas McMillan group. And so then you had people like Kellen Taylor and Scott Smith and Amy Van Alstyne without a team, and they liked that structure. And so... Uh, then all of a sudden I just had like eight people, Ben Bruce, Steph Bruce. And, uh, so it just happened real quick and real organically. Kind of right place, right time as right well. Right place, right place, right time. And, um, you know, <laughs> I mean, I'm just very, I'm very thankful that they trusted me. Never, or does it ever make you nervous working with athletes of that level when it is their job and it is their career and so much of it is in your hands? What does it make me nervous? Or, yeah. Do you um, ever- I mean, I'm nervous for them. I, I don't feel any... Uh, yeah, do you feel any pressure? No, I don't I don't feel pressure that much. It doesn't feel that different to me than when I was coaching my buddy Adam McDowell to make the trials here in 2012. You know, it, it feels very much the same. Um, I just want them... I just want... I just... I just want them to succeed, you know? And uh, I... I will say, back to the business coaching side... I'm able to separate that pretty good in those situations. Like, I don't sit here and think, oh, I hope Aaron runs well tomorrow because then it'll open this door or open that door. I don't, I don't, I let that be a byproduct of the performances. Yeah. And then you deal with the business side That's after right. the fact. That's right. From a philosophical perspective, and you've mentioned some of this during our conversation already, but who are some of your biggest influences from a coaching perspective? From the coaching world, well, of course, it starts in uh, with my high school coach because I think he did the best job um, that I've ever experienced in terms of understanding people and being able to relate to people and figure out what makes them tick and and how to deal with them. And I'm not saying I figured everybody out, um, but but the people that I work well with, I work really well with, you know. And so it's important to recognize that. Yeah, yeah. And so he he was very good uh, about that. Um, you know, my college coach Ed Schneider was uh, kind of a hard ass, and uh, he didn't really say much, and he kind of expected a lot out of you, and you didn't get a lot of rah rah stuff from him. So it was a little bit different than my high school experience, but it was pretty good though. It was really pretty. Um, enlightening because you know what? You shouldn't kiss people's butt when they don't do what they're supposed to. You know, you shouldn't pat them on the back if they're not doing what they're supposed to do. And, um, you know, you shouldn't get overly hyped about every single workout either. Um, that's just your job, you know? And so I learned a lot from him and I think I've taken a lot of that into how I coach these, these folks, especially because look, you, you can't have all those emotional highs every week. You know, you, you gotta, you gotta just get the job done and then save the big emotional high for the race. Um, so I learned that, um, Keith and Kevin were fantastic. You know, Kevin Hansen, I feel like similar to my high school coach sort of become, became a role model for me without even him or I knowing it, you know? And I just, I just thought he was, I just liked how he went about his life. You know, he didn't, he didn't give a shit about what other people thought about him, you know, which was, that was kind of enlightening. And that was another aha moment. Oh, like you don't have to care if people like you or not. You just have to care if the people that you love, love you. And after that, nobody else matters, you know? And so he was kind of that type of guy. So I learned that from him. Uh, and of course, training stuff as well. Greg McMillan, a lot of the ancillary work and the more scientific stuff that we do sort of came from him because I worked with him. Um, both he, he coached me for a bit back in, back in the day. And then also obviously working with him in, in Flagstaff, um, you know, so that, that's kind of the journey, uh, my coaching tree. Yeah. yeah. How do you continue your education now? That's interesting because I don't want to read too much. It gets in your head. You know, I remember one year 15, I think it was, 
uh, I started trying stuff that I read here and there. It just, uh, you know, it gets jumbled up in your head. It's more, um, you know, if, if a group's doing really well or if an athlete's doing really well, um, you know, I might try to take a peek at what they're doing and see if I can grab anything from that. But, you know, you don't want to make wholesale tweaks ever or wholesale changes ever. You just want to make small tweaks. And so, yeah, I mean, I think I just try to keep, keep an eye out for things that are working, you know, or, or I guess occasionally if something really isn't working, I try to see what those people are doing too and, and avoid that. But mostly now I feel like we have a really good thing going and I'm mostly looking at the data from our own group and seeing what's worked for us. And then, um, occasionally trying a few things that I might, might pick up here and there. Yeah. Any big aha moments for you from a training standpoint since you've been working with higher level athletes for the last several years? Uh, yeah, sure. Of course. Um, I think, I think, gosh, I mean, I'm a confident person, so I believe very strongly in what we do. Um, but I've, I've certainly learned things along the way. Um, I guess an aha moment, uh, everything has been such a, such a nice gradual progression. So it's tough to think of one really, really big thing, um, you know, that happened. I guess I'll say this, I guess I'll say this in 2015, that year I was talking about, it's probably the worst season we ever had. And it was the track season in 15 leading up to the U S championships. And it was almost like I didn't follow my own gut and my own advice. I felt pressure to really put some great times out there and, we didn't, we, we got on the track way too much. We did way too many track workouts, way too many quote unquote 5k, 10k specific workouts, you know, that were the traditional VO2 type of stuff, which is not me and it's not our program. And we ran like crap at the U S championships. And I just, I just said, I'm not doing that again. I know what works. I'm going to stick with what works. And again, make small tweaks along the way, but I'm not going to do that again, you know? And then in 16, of course, we went to the track trials and got fourth place in the 10K men's, fourth place in the women's 10K, uh, seventh place in the women's 10K, had two people in the women's 5K uh, uh, trials um, finals. And that was my moment where it's like, okay, yes, what we do works don't try all this magic stuff. Just do the solid stuff that works and then build the culture and everything else will, will fall into place. Yeah. Trust your stuff. Trust it. Trust it. Yeah. What we have a lot of, or I have a lot of young and aspiring coaches who listen to this podcast. What, I don't want to say blanket advice you would give them, but if you could tell them one thing early on in their coaching career, what would it be? Well, you, you know, you, you, you have to, build the culture first, you know, what, what kind of athletes do you work well with? Um, you know, what environment are you in, be it high school, college, professional, sub elite, um, online coaching, whatever it might be. Um, you know, what, what, what do you want? It's almost like you have to look at it like a business, you know, what, what do you want the culture of your team to be? And then focus on that. And, make sure that the people you're working with are bought into what you're doing. Because I'm telling you right now, you could, you could raise Bill Bowerman for the dead and he could write your schedule. But if you don't have the people that you're working with believing in you and believing in each other and believing in what they're doing, it's not going to work. So I think that's number one. And then look, look, you know, as far as the training, step back every once in a while and ask yourself, does this make sense? 
You know, don't go into video game mode. Don't get overly analytical about every little uh, piece of every little workout and, and, and every piece of training. Remember that, you know, 10 by mile ain't that much different than 8 by mile, you know, uh, or, or, or 9 by 1200 or whatever little workout you have pl- planned for the day. As long as you're sticking with your overall philosophy, you're going to be just fine. Last coaching specific question outside of building the culture and then the X's and O's of writing the run workouts themselves. Generally, what do things look like for your squad from an ancillary perspective? You touched on it a little bit that you learned quite a bit from Greg McMillan, but how often are your athletes in say the weight room? How often are they getting treatment and how much does it vary from athlete to athlete, depending on where they are in their career and what their specific needs might be? Well, we just moved to two, strength and conditioning sessions per week as a group. So everybody's in there twice a week, um, monitored very closely by two certified strength and conditioning coaches. They're writing the entire program. It's individualized for each athlete based on not only their biomechanical needs and issues, but also what particular race they might have coming up. So if it's Boston, we're doing a lot of stuff to get ready for the downhills. If it's, um, the trials in LA, we were doing a lot of stuff to get ready for the turns, you know, just different things. So the weight room is very specific to what's coming up. It's just like training, um, just like running. Um, we're doing form drills a couple times a week, plyometrics, um, some explosive stuff, some hill sprints, some box jumps, uh, jump rope, things like that. Fast twitch muscle fiber stuff, um, which is important when you're a distance runner because you're not always engaging those muscle fibers, uh, and it's important to do so. Um, so that's that's the ancillary work. Couple, a couple, a couple drill sessions, plyometrics, and then um, strength and conditioning. So you're not coaching runners necessarily. You're coaching athletes who specialize in running. For sure. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. We want to be athletes. So last couple questions since we got to get over to the Hilton for elite athlete meeting here in a bit, but you're a big fan of the sport. Um, you can be very vocal about where you stand on certain topics. What's going on in running right now that bothers you as someone who is not only a fan of the sport, but is also invested on different levels? Well, it's funny you ask that because I do have a lot of opinions. I, I've gotten less, I've gotten more and more away from that because I'm just so focused on our group. And I just, I kind of took the attitude a while back that the best thing we can do for the sport is just kick ass ourselves and put good performances out there, do it clean, and um, do things right in terms of uh, social media and sharing. And so I'm so focused on our group. Um, you know, it 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 bothers me that. Well, drugs, of course, you know, but, but at the same time, I sort of take a common sense view on that too, because I'm such a fan of all sports and unfortunately it's, it's, it's prevalent in all sports. So I'm not naive, you know, I continue to have faith that certainly USADA, I think is doing a good job. Uh, lately WADA has been a little uh, wonky. I'm not sure what's going on there, but, um, you know, I, I just, um, yeah, that bothers me. What else? I, I guess, um, I think the sport is more popular. A lot of people are negative when they have these conversations and they think, oh, the sport's not popular. It's not what it used to be. But I'll, I'll flip that and say, I don't know what you want, guys. Like every sport is becoming more niche. Even 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 the footballs of the world and the basketballs, every, every sport is like the followings are especially if those sports are kind of, they're kind of going down, but they're getting more passionate, you know? And I feel like that's our sport too. We're never going to be on the cover of Sports Illustrated again or anytime soon, it doesn't seem. But we, uh, the people who follow it have a ton of ways to follow it more than ever. So I'm, 
I'm more optimistic than maybe you would have thought I would have given you uh, there. Yeah. So building off that, outside of your own group, who you're obviously invested in and excited about, who else excites you in running as a fan of the sport? Yeah. Okay. That's a good question. Um, oh, well, I... Uh, I like Des Linden. You know, I love how she handled her Boston win. I thought to the point I was making earlier about you've got to build those fans so that when you have the big day, it can really explode. Well, her big day exploded and then she took advantage of it. I love that she was able to cross over into the mainstream and be at the VMAs and uh, make all these appearances and throw out all these first pitches. She said yes to almost everything. Well, I, I don't know how many things were thrown She said yes to a yacht. She said a lot. She did yes to a lot of things, which I think was great for her and great for the sport. And so, I mean, that that is going to always endear me to her. Plus, I know her personally. But she she she's fantastic. Um, I get excited about that. Um, you know, I like having groups that I feel like we're competing against. That's good. That's sports, you know? And I, I like Jerry a lot, Schumacher, and I love his group. I don't feel like we're... Um, um, a track group, uh, particularly middle distance, obviously. So those folks, I don't pay as much attention to, but, but I like when we get to race Chris Derrick or Shalane or, um, those folks, uh, Emily Infeld, because I know they're going to bring it. I know they're going to be ready on the day. And that's what I feel like we are. And, um, you know, I know that they've had a lot of success, but at the same time, if you, if you just pull out their marathoners, Obviously, Shalane won the New York City Marathon, but otherwise, I think we're right there. And so I, I, that's fun for me. It's fun to compete against someone that I respect, like Jerry and, um, and those athletes who I also respect. But, you know, at the same time, I'm a very competitive person, so I want to beat them very badly. And, uh, and mostly, I just, I'm a fan of our group. Cool. I think that's a great place to wrap things up. Thank you so much for your time. No problem. Thanks, Mario. And that's a wrap on this week's show. Thank you so much for listening in. If you would like to help out the Morning Shakeout podcast, the easiest way for you to do so is by going to Apple Podcasts, wherever you consume audio, and leaving a rating and a review. only takes a minute or two, but helps other listeners discover the show, and it means a lot to me. Thank you to all of you who've done so already, and for those of you who haven't, please get on it. I'm just kidding. I'm not that desperate. Uh, for those of you who would like to support the show even further, you can do that by going to themorningshakeout.com slash support and pledging via Patreon. Many thanks to those of you who have already done that. That really means a lot to me and really helps to sustain this show and cover all of my costs. And finally, thank you to John Isaac, who makes this show sound as good as it does week in and week out. I don't know what I do without you, John. So gracias. That's it for this week's episode. I'm Mario Fraley, and this has been the Morning Shakeout Podcast. Podcast.